Hello and welcome to the Greenhouse Church Podcast. My name is Benj Gould and I'm the lead pastor. We are all about creating an environment where anyone can follow the way of Jesus. So we hope that this teaching helps you on your way. Hello, this is a little bonus episode and um, this is a question and response episode around our idol series that we've just we've just wrapped up and this is a little experiment that i'm running to see how it goes and really the idea around this is when we've done a series that we would collect some questions that i would be able to respond to not give answers it's question and response not question and answer um so that these talks become less just monologues from the front but a conversation within our community as we wrestle these things out and think about them from different perspectives and within our own world so um i've collected stories from conversations i've had from instagram and from other places and these are sort of the the top couple that i want to respond to our first question is from tony and he asks Could you comment on Old Testament idolatry, not just a question of priorities of good things? Was Old Testament idolatry simply a case of the extreme where idols demanded everything and gave nothing in return? Uh, This is a really good question in response to some of the definitions we've been using around idolatry. We use that definition from Andy Crouch, which says idols at first offer everything and demand nothing and in the end demand everything and offer nothing. He says, isn't just like old to some idolatry. Is it just the extreme of that? And then he says, you know, what about good things and ultimate things? That Keller quote that idols are just good things made ultimate things, which really comes from Augustine's idea of disordered loves and the idea of sin or idolatry is just a, a disordering of the things that we love and not so much that we love the wrong things, but we love the right things in the wrong order. So he says, you know, what about just straight up, idol worship, Asherah poles, golden calf, Baal in the Old Testament? Um, I think that's a really good question. And, you know, you can look at that and go, man, there's so much such a an overt idol worship that seems maybe more more evil than, than what we have in our day. Um, and I was thinking even about, you know, Baal worship. Baal was the god of fertility and sort of a lot of Israel's neighbors worshiped Baal. And... You know, in an agrarian society, a farming society, uh, fertility is a big deal because, you know, the ability to have kids means the ability to farm more um, and, and protect your tribe. And fertility in your crops means the ability to feed your family. And even that, like the temptation to worship Baal, is just a temptation around making a good thing an ultimate thing that i want to look after my family i want to um, be fruitful and multiply i want to have a strong tribe and i think that is just the same desire that drives us in our own pursuit of success or the aussie dream or um, progress or whatever it is all the idols that we are faced with in our own culture it might be just uh, a a bit less in your face Um, and I think, no doubt, whether you know, you're know you idolizing a good thing or, or a straight-up evil thing, idolatry is evil because it does violence to our soul, even when we, even when we are chasing a good thing, because um, anything other than Jesus cannot hold the weight, the gravity of our worship. 
He's the only unshakable thing in our world. So um, Old Testament idols and New Testament idols, I think, are all driven by the same thing, that we all are tempted and, and the enemy you know, uses tricky schemes to get us to uh, misorient our lives around something that is just unhelpful for us, that does violence to our souls. The next question is from Gabby, and she asks this question. Why do we have desires given by God if we aren't meant to desire those things? And this is a really good, thoughtful question. I've got two responses. The first one is that um, not all desires are God-given. Not everything that we want in life is actually from God. And Freud has this idea that has really influenced Western society pretty profoundly is that um, culture has dampened our desires. Our, the, the cultural system has oppressed our desires. And he talks particularly in terms of sexual kind of desires, but it, it, it's, it's for everything, this kind of drive for pleasure, to drive to seek my desires. And the way to get to happiness or pleasure is to unbridle your desires, to unleash them. This is where you get the idea of like follow your heart or be true to yourself or find your authentic self or you do you is that idea of like, don't let the culture oppress you or any system tell you or put boundary on what you should or shouldn't do. Um, and this kind of idea is uh, really unhelpful, I think, because pleasure as an end goal has diminishing returns. Um, the more that you get something that you want, the less pleasure you get from it. Uh, the second donut is never as good as the first donut. And we all have like a war of desires of what we want short term and what we want long term. It's like our, our kind of animalistic brain that desires for um, food and safety and sex. And then we have our prefrontal cortex, the part that makes us like particularly human as we strategize and plan into the future. And we often have this like war between what we want short term and what we want long term. I want to eat a block of Aldi chocolate today, right? Because Aldi chocolate is the best. But I also want to have a healthy body in 20 years time. And so an Aldi block of chocolate isn't going to help me if I have it every day. And so there is this kind of war of desires. It's what I want now versus what I want most. Um, and so not all desires are God given. And, you know, we have to take all of those things with a grain of salt, think about pleasure long-term and what the like role of pleasure is in our life. Um, we can't just seek pleasure because the more we seek it, the less we get return from it. Um, the second thing I would say to this idea of kind of God-given desires, if we're like given desires to do something, then why would God not want us to do that? Is that not all desires are bad. It's not a bad desire to want a husband or a wife or to want a career that's fulfilling or to want um, to buy a house or whatever it is or to have some sort of success in uh, your world. Like th Those things aren't necessarily bad, but when those things become ultimate things, those desires take over your whole life as your kind of center of gravity, that's when it becomes dangerous because what happens if you never get married? Or you do get married and it's not as good as you think. Or what happens if you don't get the career you want or you do and it's not as good as you think. The only thing in our world that is unshakable is Jesus and his kingdom. And so that is the only thing that can hold the weight of our, of our worship, of our center of gravity. 
And it's from there that all those other desires find their place and that we can live as resilient human beings so that if I don't get the things that I want, if I don't get my desires, then I'm still actually okay. It's still well with my soul. I'm still a healthy human. This next question is from Alicia and she says, where do you think the balance is between self-improvement and idolizing the self? I think this is a really, really good question. And um, from a self-confessed, self-improvement junkie as I am, Enneagram One, I always want to perfect myself. I have this kind of drive to do that and get addicted to that in some senses. Um, this is a really good perceptive question um, because we all want to be better humans, right? We all want to be more well-adjusted, well-differentiated, uh, better parents, better friends, better bosses, better employees. We all want to improve. We all want to get better in life. But at what point does that become about idolizing yourself and who you are rather than progressing to a, to a bigger end? And I think the perceptive question in all of that is, what am I improving towards? What am I growing towards? What is the end goal of all that I'm doing? Is it to read more books so that I become smarter and people respect me more and think that I'm smarter? Is it to hit the gym and get ripped so that people find me more attractive? Is it improving in my, um, in my business goals so that, you know, I can make more money and so that people see me as wealthy and successful and, uh, respect me more. The end goal is actually really important because the means can often look the same. This desire to actually become more like Jesus can actually subtly move into just the idol of, I want to be a better person. I want people to like me more. And, um, the question is, you know, am I becoming more loving? That is the ultimate goal of spiritual growth. That any any measure of spiritual maturity is not about how often you read your Bible or how often you go to church or anything like that, how ethical you can be. Is, is am I becoming a more loving person? The greatest commandment that Jesus gave us was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It's love. The end goal is love. Um, am I chasing self-improvement so that I can love God and neighbor better? Or am I chasing self-improvement so that God might love me better or neighbor might love me better? Very subtle difference, but very, very important, huge difference. Great question. Okay, a few questions here on sex and sexuality. Um, this one comes from Danny and she says, What does it mean to become one flesh with someone? in practical terms. What about past relationships? Um, this comes from the idea in scriptures that, you know, when you're married to someone or when you have sex with someone, you become one flesh with them. Um, and this, this kind of idea out there in some Christian circles around soul ties is that when you have sex with someone, your soul is tied to that person. And so it requires a breaking of those things when you, when you break apart. Um, you know, I think that is a complicated thing. Um, but it's really language trying to grasp at the sense that sex is important. I think we should value it. Our culture just says that sex is purely physical. It's just about uh, play for grown-ups. But I think it does hold an, em an emotional and a spiritual weight. There is a sense of deep connection that comes from having sex with someone. Um, there, is a, there is a deep kind of oneness and intimacy there. 
um, we know that, you know, during sex, oxytocin is released and that's like the, the bonding chemical. There is like something kind of going on more than just a physical reaction. Um, so in practical terms, I think it means we should value and, and think about sex more than what our culture does. Um, uh, so what does this really mean? Like particularly for past relationships, maybe sexual relationships that you've had, what does it mean going forward? I'm, I think it means like bloody hurts right that you know when you add on an extra layer of sexual intimacy from a past relationship that that leaves its mark in a lot of ways um and it means any past relationships like that there's sort of healing that has to happen on an emotional level um on a relational level but on a spiritual level as well and i think um the good thing is that jesus is our healer and along with doing the work you know in community um counselor and working through breakups and all that sort of stuff if you have had a past relationship that has been sexual i think there is actually some spiritual implication to to work through i'm not saying that that is not impossible at all like jesus is the forgiver he is the restorer the redeemer and he can restore you he would re- he will restore you um when you come to him I, I love that story that i that i did in the talk around the woman caught in adultery and she had clearly kind of done the the wrong thing according to the law but Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And in that moment, there's this incredible healing between this woman and Jesus. She was searching for that kind of what it means to be naked and unashamed, searching for the Garden of Eden and connection and oneness, like we're all searching for. Um, and she was searching for it in the bed of someone who wasn't her husband, as was the, the dude, right? But he's not in the story, which is always convenient. Um... But there she finds herself in front of Jesus, naked and unashamed, just like the Garden of Eden. And it's from that place of love and connection and restoration that she can go and sin no more, which means live in more wholeness and integration and a better, healthier life. Um, And I think that's a beautiful thing. And so I think on one hand, we should really value sexuality. And I think that's why sexuality is best confined to a covenant marriage. but if that hasn't been your past experience, then I think there is healing for that. It just means that there is stuff to be healed. Um, that's all. Okay, this question comes from Ellie and she says, Can you discuss practical rhythms in singleness and dating regarding the idol of sex and sexuality? Great question. Um, first thing to say is that I'm not single and I haven't dated for over 10 years. And so take anything I say with a grain of salt. Um, but singleness, I think for single people, the best thing you can do is look at Jesus' life as a vision for singleness. That it actually provides a, a center point and a way forward of a life that isn't just waiting to get married. Jesus, I don't think, ever intended to marry. And uh, his life was, was, was pretty incredible, I think. And so I think it's important for us to regain that that image of singleness, um, even if at some point you will get married, like to, to see this season now not as like a waiting for something to happen but as a a gift to be uh lived and 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 fully received in the moment today and so um paul says you know singleness is is a freedom to um make kingdom impact and there is things you can do as a single person that you can't do as a married as a married person and so enjoy your singleness um use it for the kingdom 
Um, find relational fulfillment in community and in Jesus rather than a, a spouse now so that, you know, if you do get married in the future, then, you know, you, your, your whole life isn't dependent on that one person. And the thing I have learned uh, over and over again walking with people is that relationships won't solve your problems. A relationship with that person won't solve your insecurities. It won't solve the stuff that's going on in your soul. Um, it will only amplify those things. It will only cause more more, um, more problems to come up because uh, the more people and the closer they are, the more stuff comes out. And so um, don't ever view marriage as the fix to a problem. Um, Jesus is always first and foremost, and his community is, is the way through that. Um, when it comes to dating, and I think maybe some of the question you're getting at is around boundaries in terms of sex and all that sort of stuff, I think probably the most important thing is that... Um, you ensure the person that you're dating, and this is part of dating, you're experimenting with another person, like trying to work out, is this someone that I could do life with? But one of the key questions that you have to ask is, uh, you know, are we headed in the same direction? Are we both following the way of Jesus and in the same trajectory? Um, not just do they go to church or do they, they grow up going to church or whatever it is, but are they actually pursuing Jesus? Because when you're heading in the same direction as a couple, um, that erases so much tension and friction that comes up if you are heading even in slightly misaligned directions. Um, and I see that time and time again in people's marriages is that they're just, you know, they might have said the same words or whatever it is, but they're just misaligned and they're slightly off, uh, misorientated in directions. And that just caused distance or, or friction and bumping into each other in other ways. Um, and then when it comes to sort of boundaries in terms of, you know, having sex with people while you're dating, I think it's important for you to really define and get convicted around that thing for yourself, not just because someone said it or because the pastor said it or because that's what they said in your church growing up or at school or whatever it is, but actually to think about your view of sexuality and what it means to you, like what what it actually what place it actually wants to play in your life, um, and whether you know you you actually want to put covenant around it. Um, and the thing around dating, like, it's 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 so hard, right? Because it's like where do you draw the line of you know we're committed to each other for life. Um, and I think a lot of people say, you know, it can be earlier that you can make that decision. We're going to move in together or, uh, we're engaged now, whatever it is. But I think at some point you have to draw, draw the line of like, what is the line in the sand that I am all in on this person? I'm committed to this person for the long haul. And I think that is the, the kind of covenant of marriage. Um, but you might think differently, but it's important for you to get those convictions for yourself because, um, when you're in the heat of the moment, uh, those things uh, won't stay as strong if they're from external places, not from internal places. So just do the work yourself um, and wrestle with it now while you can. I reckon that's that's the best thing. You've got an opportunity in front of you and you don't have to kind of deconstruct or um, work through mistakes or things you wish you had done differently later on. You know, you have the opportunity to get into that now. This final question, and it's a great way to land, is from Gabby. She says, how do we separate ourselves from Western culture? How do we be in it and not of it? And this is really what this whole series has been about. You know, when we are swimming against the tide, the river of the cultural pools to give our worship, our orientation to certain things, um, we are called to live an alternate way. And there's some things that the way of Jesus agrees with in our culture and some things that is um, in, in direct contrast to. 
And I think there is one way and really only one way to answer this question, Gabby, and it's the church. The church has always been a counterculture in the midst of a larger culture going on. We are a, a remnant community. We are a, a counterculture formed of people following an alternate way. We are a kingdom outpost. And we need deeply embedded community to help us actually live against the pull of what our culture is doing. Uh, we need teaching. We need habits. We need community. We need the Holy Spirit. And so we kind of talk about following the way of Jesus requires two things of us. It requires us to practice that we are actually practicing Christians. We habituate these things, like we get it into our muscle memory and our core and um, get it a part of our lived lives, Sabbath and scripture and prayer and silence and hospitality and fasting. Um, all this stuff, generosity, serving, all this stuff helps us form us into the likeness of Jesus, the living in alternate way, that we live cross-shaped, resurrection-shaped lives. Um, and to follow the voyages, we need to be practicing Christians, but we need gathering as well. We need other people. We cannot do this on our own. You cannot just come to church once every three weeks for an hour and think that you'll be formed against, you know, the onslaught of Netflix and Disney Plus and podcasts and TikTok and social media algorithms and all this stuff that's forming us in an alternate way. We need deeply embedded community, uh, large gatherings, social gatherings, small gatherings like the triad who helps keep you accountable to who you want to be. People that know you deeply and know your flaws and aren't impressed by you and um, but still love you. And that's kind of what we're trying to do. Um, <clears throat> but it requires intentionality to really get amongst the church, live a counterculture. Um, I've been watching Andor, which is like the best Star Wars TV show ever. Uh, Tony Gilroy, the writer, is a genius. Um, and there's this line from from Star Wars. It's kind of around the rise of the rebellion and not just like in a, you know, Luke Skywalker kind of you are my father type way, but like in real people's lives, what does the empire and oppression look like for real people? Um Anyway, they talk about the rebellion. There's these pockets of fermentation around the galaxy that are bubbling up and living an alternate way that are rising up against an empire that is oppressive. And I love that idea that the church is like a pocket of fermentation, a counterculture. And that's why we call ourselves Greenhouse. We are like this little hothouse of growth and life and this kind of environment where we can actually build a flourishing, thriving counterculture in the midst of a culture that does not agree with so much of what we stand for. Um, it's our commitment to following the way of Jesus with other people. That's how we are in the culture and not of it. Much love to you all. We'll see you soon.